Wave pool technology is progressing at a rapid rate, and commercially surfable wave pools are opening around the world. Welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. My name is Nick Robinson, and through my guests, we take a detailed look at this fascinating new game. Check us out on wavepoolmag.com. For your curiosity and stuff. If you haven't met Jess Ponting or heard him speak, he's an amazing guy. He's really good to uh, good to know, especially in the wave park industry. And um, he's been working with Surf Park Central on their Surf Park Summit for some time. And uh, he's an associate professor at the San Diego University, amongst other things. But he'll explain that in more more greater detail. We're really excited to chat with Jess Ponting about all kinds of things like Joel Parker getting slapped in the face and statistical analysis of, of surfer populations and travel and get into a lot of surf park stuff. So it's a, it's a really interesting, in-depth conversation. So keep up. <laughs> Strictly speaking, Associate Professor of Sustainable Tourism. And uh, I mean, yeah, there's a few things I do. So I'm the Director of the Center for Surf Research at San Diego State. And I'm a uh, a co-founder of Stoke Certified, which does sustainability certifications for surf and snow resorts as well as surf parks, and then um, the whole Surf Park Central and um, Surf Park Summit thing. But yeah, associate professor at the San Diego State University. Okay, so what do I call you, Doctor Doctor Jess? Uh, you you could. Oh, uh, you could just call me <laughs> Jess as well. I'd probably be a little more comfortable all around. <laughs> well. Jess Ponting, thanks so much for coming on to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. Really do appreciate your time. No, my pleasure. No problem at all. Yeah, because we've been trying to get this together for some time and, and it's, uh, I'm glad we, we finally got on track. Um, but let's go way back when. Um, you Did you enroll in the University of the South Pacific? It sounds like no, that, that, that was my that was my first grown-up job, actually. Um, I was a PhD student at um, the University of Technology, Sydney, and I'd uh, managed to get myself a scholarship to study surf tourism. Um, but I kept finding lots of really interesting side projects to get involved with. And um, yeah, which meant that my PhD process kept uh, getting longer and longer until eventually my scholarship ran out after the third year. And so I had to get, uh, in inverted commas, a real job. And I got one as a, um, a lecturer at the University of the South Pacific at the Lauthala campus in Suva in Fiji. Nice. So did you surf a lot down there? I did not. In my, uh, in my kind of daydreams about what that job might be like, I, I was living on a beach with a hammock under some coconut palms with a little A-frame reef break out the front but uh suva is not like that in fact there are zero beaches in suva uh there are lots of mud flats there are actually a couple of waves but there are reef breaks out in the middle of the harbor and they require a boat to get out to so not having a boat that was tricky i did meet some kind folks um john phil talking to you who were nice enough to take me out there a couple of times uh, but aside from that, it was an expensive process that meant driving either halfway around the island to the Coral Coast and having accommodation there and getting out to the fringing reefs or the outer reefs of Bengal Lagoon, um, Frigate's Passage, one of my favourite surf breaks in the world, or going right over to um, 
Nandi, the nation's capital, and going out to the, the Mamanutha group out there where Tavarua uh, and the more famous breaks of Fiji are located. But again, that's, that's accommodation and there's uh, boat trips involved with that. So essentially, aside from the uh, friends throwing me a bone and taking me out around Suva, it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get to go surfing. So no, my ironically, my surfing life suffered quite a bit living in Fiji for three years. That sounds weird. It sounds at odds to what Fiji is supposed to be all about. But anyway, uh, life, wrong, wrong side of the island and lacking in, uh, in the right kind of transportation. I needed one with an outboard engine, not one with four wheels. <laughs> but um so can to me rewind a little bit more and and take me back to the first time you ever jumped on a board could you paint us a picture of that scene well it'd be hard to remember um i grew up on the mid-north coast of new south wales in australia i was born in old south wales in the uk and then my parents moved to australia when i was two and yeah we moved to the you know foster Tuncurry, Tari kind of area for those who know the geography. And um, my parents would take us to the beach pretty much every weekend. And so I would started jumping under waves and then with uh, crappy old finless bodyboards. And then um, I, at some point, pestered my parents to get me what in Australia is called a foamy now called a soft top, but they were pretty primitive back in those days, a big bulbous-nosed Coolite with uh, big rubber twin fins on it. And I guess I was probably around 10 years of age. And then when I was about 12, I got my first fiberglass surfboard. And I was probably all of about five feet tall, and this thing was about six foot eight. It's uh, Gary Mead, I remember it was the brand. I have no idea who Gary Mead is. And I now recognize that it was kind of a, an Iper type of shape uh, with massive flyers and a, and a narrow swallow tail and a, and a big round nose at one end. But it certainly floated me, that's for sure. Yeah, swallowtails were huge in those days. I think my first board was a lightning bolt swallowtail. It's just crazy. Twin fin. Uh, we're jumping around all over the place here because then all of a sudden you ended up in San Diego. So was that a long time later? Um, that was directly after Fiji. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty circuitous journey to get from Australia um, and then, you know, through to my um, academic pursuits at the graduate level and then into my career. But, yeah, San Diego was uh, what happened after my three-year contract in Fiji uh, was coming to an end. I was applying for academic jobs. Um, Being a surfer, uh, my options are a little limited. There's plenty of universities in the world, but not many of them that are in uh, surfing locations. And um, having kind of been somewhat uh, gypped by the University of the South Pacific in Suva, I was pretty keen to get somewhere um, a little little more adjacent to waves that I could access pretty easily. I had applied actually for jobs in um, Newcastle in Australia and one in Bournemouth in the UK and then um, this one in San Diego is the best fit and the one that ended up coming through. And was it a pretty simple process after that to get um, residency in the US? Because you've obviously enjoyed it, so you're still there today. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was not my plan to move here forever. Um, but yeah, there was kind of part of the negotiated contract was to um, get some legal assistance into that. So you kind of come on what's called an H-1B visa and, and there's a smooth ride into a green card, but it takes a few years. Right. 
Okay. And I found this thing online. I mean, it's a, it's um, riding waves of intra-seasonal demand in surf tourism, analyzing the nexus of seasonality in 21st century surf forecasting technology. Was that you? Um, I was part of that, yeah. Um, so that came out of a very broad-ranging 2015 survey, which we're still um, kind of picking uh, diamonds out of. And yeah, that, that was part of it looking at, because myself and Leon Marco is the other kind of main author on that. Um, it's a guy I've been in touch with for quite some time. And I've been interested in what happens with um, both surf forecasting technology and then also webcams and what it means for surf tourism. Uh, having heard anecdotal reports of real changes in the way that people travel to surfing destinations. When I was uh, a young surf traveler of my early 20s, you know, spending years at a time in Indonesia, you would just travel around and post up at places and, and wait for the surf to show up. Um, but now uh, with really accurate surf forecasting, um, it, it's cleared the way for surgical strikes, particularly to more remote regions um, where it's not that much fun to post up for a couple of months at a time. People will now just know there's a swell coming and go. So if you are living in those destinations, uh, you go from a fairly steady surfer population throughout a surfing season to kind of repetitive boom and bust cycles where you have no one and then you're over capacity and then you have no one and then you're over capacity and that has some real implications for people who are trying to make a living in those places and has real implications for the sustainability of those destinations so that was kind of the the driver for, for looking at that and you know Another interesting outcome of that was the kind of intra-regional mobility that the, the wave cams bring into the equation where, you know, again, when I was a kid, we would, um, you know, jump in the car with my neighbour, our parents, we would make them drive us to pretty much every surf spot that we could access without having to go back out to the main road. There's about 15 of them. We'd check them in order and then check them back in reverse order and then end up where we started off about an hour later. But now you can kind of click through the cams and get a fairly decent idea of uh, of at least if somewhere is breaking with the right kind of form that you'd like to go and check out. But that's exactly what I used to do as a kid in Cape Town in South Africa because we were on a peninsula and we'd drive hundreds of kilometers across to go and check the surf. And then exactly what you said, we end up right where we started and surf the same break. Crazy. Right, or or worst case scenario, the onshore comes up and you and you blow the whole thing. Uh, yeah. So. There's even more, I, I believe, intra-regional um, mobility when people are in destinations and they're able to more easily decipher where the, the right spot is on the day without having to fully understand what makes a, a particular spot good. They can just look. And that has similar kinds of impacts on crowding, clustering, uh, and the experience of surfing in particular destinations. And did you focus on any particular destinations in that study? Uh, that one, I think most of the, um, the the discussion was around Pavonas in southern Costa Rica. Um, we had a, a guy down there who was collecting data 
and doing counts of people, uh, relating that back to um, you know surf forecasts and so on. So yeah, that that was kind of where the conversation was around. It's a pretty good example of that kind of a destination where it's pretty remote for Costa Rica. It's not super close, and if the swell isn't right, it's not breaking. So previously, the kind of spot where people would post up and wait for it to break because it's you know, one of the world's longest left-hand point breaks. Uh, I haven't been there. It is seriously on my bucket list. And um, but yeah, if it's not breaking, then it's not. It's just not breaking. So if people know that it's going to be on, then people will travel there specifically for that. Um, there's also some intra-regional travel in that area as well. I mean, it might not have been the scope of your study, but uh, looking around here in Portugal, you can see that obviously we get the, ma- the majority of our surf in winter and the majority of our tourism boom is in summer. So the surfing kind of balances out and creates less seasonality, which is great. So that's why the tourism board is heavily keen on promoting surfing because, you know, you could just sort of balance this thing out. Do you see that in other places of the world, do you think? I think, uh, you know, the Portugal and European um, experience in general, I think, is different to other destinations. But I do think that the surf school, which I think is, um, you know, if I understand it correctly, the bread and butter of the European surf travel industry in the summer, does change the equation a little bit. And, you know, when I first started at San Diego State and and, um, started the Center for Surf Research, I would have these kinds of conversations with surfing elders. Um, You know, Fernando Aguirre was one I remember speaking to, and he was like, well, how is surf travel not more like the snow industry where you don't just go to a snow destination and all there is is black diamond runs? You have a surf, you have a, sorry, a ski school and a, and, a, and a bunny slope and there's a progression that you go through to, and people there to take you through that progression. And as a result of that, in surfing tourism, there's been kind of, if you compare them to ecological niches, there's a bunch of ecological niches that are not being utilised by the tourism industry. And those are you know, flat water where you can go stand up paddleboarding, um, you know, which is totally fun and needn't encroach on um, people who are more dedicated surfers experience but those people can go home and feel like they had that surfing experience or the crummy close out shore break that's totally fine for a surf school or bodyboarders and you know there's um there's some industry to be made around that and again it doesn't have to encroach upon the surfing enjoyment of more dedicated surfers and in particular local populations of surfers who i remain concerned about as surf travel builds throughout the world and you know, portugal is one of those places where um, you know, the surf in summer is completely crowded out and locals tend to get the short end of the stick there but then they mostly get the winter to themselves so i think it, it probably evens out a bit and they get jobs that keep them close to the beach and in the water over the summer as well yeah and they can handle themselves in the lineup as well i mean they're pretty aggressive sometimes but uh... well, well there's uh, there's certainly uh, video evidence of that. I think everyone remembers um, Joel Parkinson getting slapped at Super Tubos uh, back in the no day. Way. Yeah, no, my, I've got to see that. My buddy Joel Costa was right there, and if you keep playing uh, the video, he he comes over to kind of calm down the guy who slapped him. Yeah, I know. I see it all the time. It's crazy, especially and strange enough. Um, Bodyboarders as well are just the most extreme of the lot. And I'm like, <laughs> anyway, maybe it's because they feel, you know, I don't want to go there because it's obviously a very sort of <laughs> difficult thing. But um, when you throw surf parks into the mix, 
um, when you were talking about you know those, those shore breaks and everything, how many how many surf parks do you think or wave pools do you, we really need to make a difference when it comes to to uncrowding the breaks? I'm not even sure there's a relationship between those things. If you look at the, I mean, just the sheer mass of of surfers uh, in the world, and I mean, it all depends on how you define a surfer. But um, I recently published a paper that was looking at um, international spending on international surf tourism so global spending on international surf tourism and sort of the best numbers um, that we have are between 17 to 35 million surfers worldwide so that's kind of the range that we work with that's a whole bunch of people Um, a lot of the geographies where surf pools are being built are not necessarily adjacent to um, waves and are probably going to create populations of people who don't live close to the beach. And by having them surfing, we're not necessarily pulling them out of the water. So I don't see there necessarily being a straight line between surf parks depopulating surf breaks. I'd be pretty surprised if that would happen. I think that they can um, you know, add, add value to the lives of surfers. I certainly can't wait to have several within driving distance of my house uh, where, you know, throughout the summertime in San Diego, the surf is uh, it's pretty crappy for months on end and uh, many of the beaches have flags up where you can't surf. I, you know, I'd, I'd love to go and be able to surf in a pool a couple of times a week just to keep my eye in for when the crowds disappear and the surf gets good again. Yeah, maybe Joel Parkinson wouldn't get slapped in a wave pool either. Well, he wouldn't. And I think that's, you know, in my early writings on surf parks, I, I kind of compare them to... Uh, I call it the holy grail effect because, you know, my background is looking at surfing tourism destinations in nature and, um, you know, the, the holy grail for surf resorts is to be able to control as many factors as possible. So having, you know, it'd be nice if you had a wave machine you could turn on every day and the surf was good every day. It'd be nice if you could, you know, orient that wave so it was offshore in the prevailing winds and you know, most importantly, it'd be nice if you could control the size of the crowd. And a number of destinations have attempted to do that over the years. It has uh, never been particularly successful in the long term because it's um, what I would refer to as politically unsustainable. There's uh, too many people who are just not down with uh, excluding groups of people from surf breaks. You know, the holy grail of a, of a surf break is all of those things. And that's what you get with a surf park is you can turn on the wave machine, you can orient it so that it's offshore most of the time and you can control um, who gets to surf and when and you get to control that environment almost completely and there's a lot of other levers to do with safety and experience that you can control so that people aren't getting slapped in the face by ordinary bodyboarders uh, and they have a guaranteed uh, number of attempts at catching waves. They might muff a few, but, you know, a wave comes through and it literally has your name on it and that's yours to have a go at. And, uh, you know, if operations are being run well, then you shouldn't be interfered with. So, you know, I think those are, are some of the, the linkages between uh, you know, what surf resorts in nature would love to be able to control and then what a surf park actually gets you. Sure. And then if you're looking at um, people learning to surf in a pool, because obviously you take away all the barriers to entry, the fear of the ocean, sharks, jellyfish, reefs, all that kind of stuff. You throw them in a pool and it's like, okay, wow, this is so much easier to deal with. Um, Surely that's going to boost the surfing uh, population. 
I think it'll boost the number of people who are trying surfing. Again, if you're looking at the geography of where these pools are, it's not necessarily going to boost the population of people who are jumping into the water and surfing in the ocean every day. Uh, it, it may boost the number of people who are showing up with um, you know, Costco soft tops having had some surfing experience and then uh, getting battered around in the water because there is a, you know, I think the one of the bigger learning curves in surfing is learning to read the ocean. And, uh, you know, I've already met people who've only learned to surf in surf pools. And, um, you know, Surf Snowdonia, I think, is an interesting case in point where you don't even look at the wave, really. You hear the machine start to whir and you start to paddle and then the wave picks you up. So you've got um, zero insights into what a good wave looks like. And the folks that I met who had learned to surf that way become quite proficient on that wave told me exactly that experience when they took it into nature. They, they were just completely lost. They didn't know what to look for. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that it's going to seed um, you know, an enormous explosion in people surfing at the ocean. Yeah, it's a freaky experience. I mean, I was um, back in Wave Garden last year in the research and development facility up there, and uh, just suddenly when this wave wells up out of nowhere, you just feel, wow, it's weird. But there's an amazing book. I'm not sure if you've read it, but it's called How to Read Water by Tristan Gooley. And uh, it's a really interesting way of looking at water and, and just talking about how you're saying how, how to read waves. Um, it's, it might be quite a nice aside for all those guys out there wanting to read something extra. So I'd throw that in there. Jess, if we can get into, when did you get into, to become more involved in the surf park industry? Because Surf Park Central popped up uh, at some place in, in your past. Yeah, I mean, I kind of take you back and draw the thread through if you like. Um, so, I mean, I, I come at it at, from a, you know, perhaps a, a non-intuitive um, angle. So my educational background was in resource and environmental management, so applied science. And then um, when I finished my undergraduate degree in Australia, I did the Australian version of Peace Corps or, or VSO as the, uh, the, the Brits have and um, went to work as a community development worker in a remote rural village in Papua New Guinea and um, learned to work with Indigenous communities to figure out what their development priorities were and to try to seek ways to make that happen. And so they were interested in things like healthcare. And I was coming at it from a place of um, wanting to achieve conservation. This is back in the mid-90s. And the thing to do back then was to try to get as much land as possible into protected areas. But there wasn't as much concern about what that meant for indigenous people. It was just to get this area locked up and then you know, yay, we've had a we've had a conservation win. But the people who subsisted on that land were in some cases boxed out of it. So the challenge was well how do you achieve development for folks without boxing them out of their resources? And one of the ways that was kind of new at the time was this idea of ecotourism and sustainable tourism. And so that was something I got really interested in at the point. And then um, having finished up a year of living in a bush materials hut in a village called Tongan Jam on the upper Sepik River in the Waskok Hills region of East Sepik province, I went to uh, Indonesia because I had missed surfing. I got to surf a couple of times over there. 
uh, but mostly spent my time mind surfing the wake from the dugout canoes I was going up and down the, the Sepik River in, which would you know create hours long perfect barrels as they lapped up against uh, the edges of the river and its various tributaries. Um, so I went surfing through Indonesia for over a year and saw um, surfing destinations being very good at providing economic benefits for local communities. Um, you know, not, not always directly. A, a lot of them at that point were run by expats who had gone to an area, kind of fallen in love with the lifestyle and, and maybe a local girl and had set up uh, accommodations or restaurants all throughout the Indonesian archipelago. But there were real social problems that were coming from having so many surfers in pretty conservative, largely Muslim villages. Um, the surfers in the mid-90s were not on their best behaviour. Um, they were bringing in alcohol and various drugs and partying and creating um, markets and demand for prostitution that were really causing upheaval in some of these communities. And, uh, you know, building the accommodations often came at the expense of beaches when places were built on the sand, creating erosion. Sewerage was usually dealt with by piping it directly out into the water where people were surfing. Trash was not being dealt with effectively, and that was out in the water as well. And I was slightly horrified to be a surfer and the impact it was having on these places. And having come right out of community development work, where there was already a 40, 50-year history of doing that and learning and doing a better job at it and an, an established methodology for working with local people, it seemed to me that some of that knowledge needed to be brought over into the realm of surfing, that both socially, culturally, economically and environmentally, we could do a much better job if surf tourism just availed itself of the available information. And I kind of had a bit of a peek through the window at that. And I was actually on the island of Sumbawa walking back to Lakey Peak after a very nice session out at Nungas, which is a, a left-hand um, kind of reef point just down from there. Still had six months of travelling through Indonesia left to go. I was feeling pretty good about the world and life, but grappling with these issues and just kind of thought, well, somebody needs to do that. Somebody needs to plug that information into the surf travel industry and if somebody is going to do that then it might as well be me and so I kind of pondered that for the rest of that trip and then came back and started a master's degree in tourism management um, to try and position myself to have the right uh, knowledge and skill set to be able to feed those things into each other. Um, that turned into a PhD, um, which turned into um, the job at the University of the South Pacific, where I got to work on the surf tourism development plan for Fiji. And then that turned into the job in San Diego, where I started the Center for Surf Research in 2011. And my approach to that, uh, I mean, the reason I tell that longer story is that's kind of the place where I'm coming from. It is from the place of community development and environmental and cultural sustainability um, and enriching the lives of local people where surf breaks are and creating sustainable livelihoods through them through sustainable businesses. So early on in some of my early meetings for the Center for Surf Research at San Diego State, um, a, a young chap with a, a nice leather briefcase was uh, attending some of these meetings. He'd been brought in by um, a student um, 
by the name of Sean Brody, and I think uh, this young guy whose name was John Luff was um, uh, sharing, he was a roommate with him, and he had this dream of surf parks that uh, he came in to kind of see what was going on. Uh, he told me... So just what year was this, more or less? It was more or less 2011. Okay, cool. And so Surf Park Central was already a website at that point, and I had been putting on conferences every year. Um, so the first one was in 2011 with you know some success and, and um, good attendance and um, the kind of presenters who you know felt like I was punching well above my weight with the people I was able to get to come to these conferences. Um, because I think at that time they were not used to being taken seriously in an academic climate. It may have been refreshing for them to be invited and, and to be taken seriously. I'm used to that from Australia. As you probably know, Australians take their surfing very seriously, a little less yeah. so in the in the US. Um, so John had uh, an idea to put on a, a conference around surf parks. Um, he saw that I'd been able to execute on that and asked me if I wanted to, to put one on with him. And, you know, my contribution to that was, well, you know, I want to do a sustainability panel. I'm, I'm interested in this surf park idea. I, I love the idea of democratising surfing and availing more people of the personal, um, mental and physical health benefits that surfing brings and the economic opportunities that a surf park might bring. But I was really worried at the time, I remain worried, um, that it could become another one of these elements of surfing that I might be ashamed of if it wasn't handled well, um, that you wouldn't want the surf park industry to become, you know, this polluting, um, exploitative global embarrassment when it could be done in a way, uh, at least I could envisage it being done in a way where it was working um, in concert with you know, people who knew a lot about coastal and marine um, environments and sustainability issues and making links between non-coastal communities and these coastal environments and their issues, creating whole new demographics of coastal and marine environment activists and providing a potential to showcase sustainable technologies and behaviours uh, in, in the, the ways that they were built, the things that they did, the messaging and communications that they employed and the issues that they chose to bring to their customers when surf parks would have come online. So that's a really long answer to your question of how did I, I come to Surf Park Central and from, from which angle, uh, but I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, I think it does. Thanks. <laughs> um, but so when, when, you know, when you're talking about sustainability uh, and looking at, obviously you look at development because essentially a surf park is, is a massive property development. And they haven't got the best track record in history of, of creating sustainable property developments as property developers. So how do you think the, the wave pool uh, industry is conducting itself since 2011? Um, I think quite well. Um, and I think there are, you know, there's the right kinds of incentives are in place for them to behave well. And you know, one of the things I'm trying to do is to create ways to make that easier for them. So one of the things that came out of uh, my work in sustainable surf tourism was a certification business called Stoke Certified, which does sustainability certification standards initially for surf resorts and then for snow resorts and then for surf and snow destinations and events related to surf and snow. And uh, we're just in the process of 
um, trialing our surf park standard. So it's completed and it's being tested with some of the, the properties who are um, early signatories to, to help develop that. Um, and it'll be kind of publicly available to the surf park world in the coming months. But um, so there's a, a comprehensive way to look at, at what a surf park does. And, you know, like any kind of development, like a surf resort in nature, there's 5 million decisions that need to be made in the establishment of a surf park, and they can be done with sustainability in mind or not. And it doesn't necessarily need to be more expensive. Decisions can be made in a creative way. Um, and there is almost always a way to make a more sustainable decision in a way that's going to have a good result, um, result in a good PR opportunity for a development uh, because, you know, people love to call out surf park developments as being horribly polluting. That's kind of the assumption. They're guilty until proven innocent. And I'm, I'm not entirely opposed to that way of thinking either. I think there should be pressure and incentives on these developments to make sure that they are as sustainable as possible. But there's some really good examples of how that's being done quite well, um, you know, in terms of, you know, water conservation, in terms of energy, um, there's great ways to, to bring renewable energy into, into the mix in terms of construction of materials and hard goods and soft goods. There's lots of different ways that, that these can be done sustainably and there's plenty of examples of good decisions being made along the way. Now, it feels to me like Wave Garden is making a lot of, is doing a hell of a lot of research into um, being more energy efficient and um, they're supposedly leading the way. I mean, they are, I think. Um, do you agree with that? Um, I, I think that, um, yeah, they're extremely efficient. There's, there's certainly no doubt about that. Um, you know, they've, they've chosen a means of creating waves that is incredibly efficient. And that, that's a great thing for energy use. I think it starts to, you know, matter a little less when all of the energy is sourced from um, sustainable, I'm sorry, renewable energy. But of course, there's a cost on top of that. So we're not just talking about carbon footprint, but as uh, you know, the, the cost to operate as well. So I think there's some real benefits there. There's obviously some trade-offs with other technologies to do with just how variable the waves are, but from a purely um, you know, cost of energy perspective, um, there's there's definitely savings to be had there. Mm -hmm. And another role model, I was just chatting to Nick Hounsfield from Bristol, um, the wave in Bristol, and they've they've obviously held environmental sustainability close to their heart ever since the inception, and it's it's deeply ingrained in his mission. Um, so is that another project that you've been looking at closely over the years? Well, we had um, Nick and Chris Hines, who is his kind of sustainability advisor and, and the founder of Surfers Against Sewage in the UK at the very first Surf Park Summit in 2013, talking about all of their concerns. And, you know, Chris Hines is just a little dynamic legend of a man who kind of lent his spirit um, he's almost the sustainability spirit animal for that project, I guess, in some ways. And I think, um, you know, that definitely translates through the project. But then uh, Nick as well, I think, comes into that project from, um, you know, from his perspective of making that a really inclusive installation, um, you know, almost a, a giant therapeutic installation and making sure that it's available to people of lots of different types of abilities um, and that's a really important part of sustainability from where I'm coming from as well 
Um, you know, often people just equate sustainability with environmental performance. Uh, that's you know, less than one third of the entire equation. So I think they're doing a wonderful job on a number of different levels. And to me, the one that uh, is maybe front and centre with that is, is their approach to being inclusive and, and getting folks into the pool who find it difficult to access the surf and surfing experiences under normal circumstances. Absolutely. And, and the accommodation there as well is great. I mean, they could have thrown up a concrete hotel, but they chose to do tents and glamping in what is probably quite a, a difficult climate to do that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what their business plan is there. Um, yeah. That, that can be a way to get accommodation in until things uh, ramp up to a certain level. Um, you know, even like, to my mind anyway, even larger scale accommodations can be done in a way that's more sustainable than not. So I think sure. there's, there's lots of options moving forward. But yeah, that's going to have a, a less significant impact on their immediate environment in the short term. So Jess, are you involved in Desert Surf? I'm not, no. Because you're wearing their cap right now. <laughs> I, have a, I have a friend who's involved and he gave me a cap. <laughs> uh, i also have an american wave machines cap and you know i i have uh it's kind of one of my little hobbies in surf park world is to, is to collect the uh the hard to get uh tech hats and development hats and t-shirts and what better way to collect that kind of merch than at uh, surf park central conference indeed yeah no surf park summit's a good place to uh you get exposed to essentially the, the whole industry at, at those events. COVID's probably thrown a wrench in the works there. Uh, so what are you guys going to do this year? At, we're going to uh, we're going to have a, a virtual summit and then we're probably going to be having a physical summit in uh, Q4 of this year as well. In San Diego. Correct, yeah. It's fantastic to chat to you, Jess. And I just wanted to ask you one question that we were talking about a little bit earlier. You, you mentioned you did a lot of research um, relating to webcams. Um, if you look at surf pools and surf parks, don't you think there's an, a massive opportunity there for, for being able to create webcams and get automated, automated videos to your phone directly after you come straight out of the surf session without even having to do things? Obviously, um, Surfline has got their sessions technology, um, which they're currently doing that, but you've got to wear an Apple Watch and then you've got to be in front of one of their webcams. But surely that could be an amazing opportunity for wave pools. I think it could be. Um, I mean, the, they could probably train those a little more accurately than they can out in nature. But, um, you know, perhaps they might be thinking more along the lines of um, a revenue stream that might be more lucrative than someone wearing a watch that's synced up to a camera that they don't make a whole bunch of money from and rather having on-site videographers um, to, to do that for them. I do think that it, it, it is a missed opportunity to have a cool uh, service for, for people who are there, but I, you know, there's probably some more considerations that we're not thinking about that are preventing that from I'm happening. Not, I'm not suggesting it be free. I mean, obviously, come out and then you click the button, that's 10 bucks a shot or whatever, because everybody wants photographs of themselves, and, and videographers could be quite expensive. But anyway, it's just one of my crazy ideas, but I think is I think it's it's like it's, it's technology's there. I think there's um, there's there's far more than that too. I mean, there's those um, you know drones that will follow you along the pool. They could be renting those out, linked to um, wristbands that would have them follow you. I'm sure there's ways to really expand that across different installations as well. I'm sure we'll see that coming in the not too distant future. Yeah, and it's so much easier to control, as you say, in a in a surf park as opposed to out there in the ocean. So I'm sure over the next few years, as more and more wave parks 
come alive and go um, get out of the ground, I'm sure there's going to be some incredible achievements happening. No doubt. It's an exciting future. Yeah. Well, Jess, thanks so much for coming on. I really do appreciate you chatting. And we've, um, we've covered some, some ground here. And uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. No worries at all, Nick. Good chatting with you. Oh, and one more thing. There's some research that will be coming out in the not-too-distant future where we actually, I think I might have mentioned it, actually quantify the global spending on um, surf travel in pre-COVID. So we actually have numbers for that that will be coming out in the not-too-distant future, which are, which will be useful for the, um, for the surf park industry. And as well as having, and this is based on a statistically significant sample size, um it's a and it's a global sample so that's that's kind of interesting and so there's, there's over 3,000 respondents and we have numbers for how many surf trips they take how much they spend on them how long they spend on them and then we also ask some questions about sustainability and in general terms it, there were some interesting findings in that uh, women, beginners, and longboarders have a statistically significant greater interest in sustainability and are willing to pay more for it. Um, now, across the board, we found that surfers have a really significant interest in sustainability, but that those groups have a statistically significant, um, even even more, they're even more willing to pay. And I think there's some interesting implications of this for the surf park industry in that those are pretty appealing populations. Um, you know, most surf parks are filling their expert waves without any bother whatsoever. You know, there's more demand than supply when it comes to expert waves. And it tends to be either secondary waves uh, that are harder to fill or sessions that where the wave machine isn't at full, full strength. And when it's not at full strength, that's cost savings for the operator. So the more beginners um, that you can attract, the better it's going to be for your surf park because you can line them up in the whitewash. You can sell them lessons. They're going to be more likely to rent boards and wetsuits because they might not have that gear and they might actually buy that gear from you as well. Uh, you know, Women are a demographic of surfer that is underrepresented on the whole and we could see exploding. And we know that, um, you know, not to want to generalise too much, but longboarders as well are happier on um, waves that take less energy to produce. So those are pretty appealing demographics. And it, that it seems to me that there's a line between sustainability performance and those particular demographics of surfer that, that might be interesting and useful for, for surf parks to, to try and attract. That's really interesting. When um, Where will we be able to get that information when it comes out? Um, there'll be some information coming out through Surf Park Central on that. It's probably going to be um, a deeper discussion of that at the uh, virtual Surf Park Summit, which will be announced for uh, Q2 in the not-too-distant future. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll look out for that in the future. That's great stuff for Excellent stuff, Jess. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. And uh, it's been really illuminating chatting to you. So I learned, I learned a lot myself. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Cool. No worries, Nick. It'd be uh, nicer if it was a, more of a two-way conversation. But yeah, maybe we can grab a beer somewhere at some point in the future and do that. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, Nick. For your curiosity and stuff.